0: Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide us a speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: I've been asked by him not to say too much about him, because he's going to actually give us a lot of that himself. All I know is that uh, he's been in the program a long time, he's going to let us know about what what has gotten him To where he is now and the only thing I think I can say to introduce him is that he's from the place where people like to get on mountain bikes and go down Slick Rock in Moab and like you know things like this and things like Leo does you know getting their knees and falling on their head and doing that kind of stuff and liking it so without any further introduction I introduce to you, Terry M. This looks like my desk. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Terry. I'm a lust addict, and because of that, I'm a sexaholic. And I'm very pleased and grateful to be here today, and uh, very pleased and grateful. I was—it's uh, been a while since I've given my story. Um, I've done it a lot of times. But it's been a couple of years, and so I was kind of rewrote it. And in in writing it, I was really remembering where I came from. And uh, you know, I've done a lot of lying in my life and embellishing. And everything to the point a lot of times where I've told the lies and stories so many times that I believe they're true. And, um, I don't have to embellish one bit in my essay story, you know, uh, it's got plenty, (laughs) plenty there. And, um, actually, um, I'll be leaving some out, uh, just, just because of time. Um, I'll, I'll give you little basics before I start about me. And then we'll go into my uh, story, and then I think the next time we talk more about the half measures availed us nothing. Before I start, uh, let me say that what I say here is strictly my own opinion. I do not speak for SA or anybody else. Uh, and what I say may not even fit for you. What I am sharing here is simply my own experience, strength, and hope. And fortunately or unfortunately, I have a lot of that. Um, also, I, I work best when, um, I feel most comfortable when I've prepared everything, uh, have it written down. I feel I owe that to the people who, to whom I'm talking to make sure that I'm well prepared. So sometimes that takes away, a little bit away from the spontaneity of my talk. And usually what happens is I start reading it about halfway through. I throw it away and just kind of roll from there. Um, finally, uh, one other thing that, uh, as I'm talking, I may occasionally say something which you might possibly interpret as an attempt at humor. Um, at, the, at, at those questionable times, please assume that it was an attempt at humor and give a polite laugh. That's all. Right. That's just right. Perfect. Okay.
2: Um,
1: okay. As I said before, my name's Terry, and I'm a lust addict and a sexaholic. Um, I'm close to 58 years old and um, God willing in 5 days I will have 16 years uh clean and sober in the program of SA. Uh Thank you. Thank you. Um, to me um, I don't shoot for I don't shoot for 5 more days still. I shoot for today. I go for 24 hours. That's the way I've always done it. And the little thing I say whenever I take a chip is that uh, at midnight tonight, um, I will have tied the world's record for sobriety, and that's 24 hours. That, that's all I can go for. Um, when discussing my when, – when it goes around the room and, I, you know, you, tell, you give your time, in such a program, I usually say – I use the phrase, clean and sober. Um, I know that comes from N.A., but um, I use it in S.A. because, and in, actually in my other programs too, which I go into, because clean is kind of the watchword I use to decide about my, deci- my decisions and my actions now. Uh, when I'm making a decision about my sobriety and recovery, my thought is, will I feel clean after that? Will I feel clean after that thought, or will I feel clean after that um, action? And I think no matter where we are in our beginning, middle, or, or whatever of our program, we know if we're going to feel clean after that. Um, also, I sometimes ask myself if afterwards I will have personal integrity, um, something I knew absolutely nothing of. 16 years ago. Besides being a recovering uh, member of SA, I'm also a recovering alcoholic. Um, I quit, actually, I quit, you can just say the same day that I quit my sexual acting out. Um, I've also been a grateful member of Al-Anon for 15 years, as well as a member of Esanon for 14 years. Um, my wife. And I have been also going to couples meetings in either SA or Essanon for about 12 years. We we helped found the first um, Essanon couples group in Los Angeles about 12 years ago and then started one in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina uh, about seven years ago. Up until last month, I was a national trustee for the SA fellowship, and I've served on a lot of different Committees, legal, financial, uh, group conscience committees. Um, I've been also privileged to do um, service work at uh, AA level. Um, and I was also a founding member and board member of an organization that is now called the National Council of Sexual Addiction, although I'm not part of that now. Um, my recovery life began in Los Angeles, California, and then uh, continued to Greensboro, North Carolina, where my wife and I moved about eight years ago. Currently, I'm on a temporary uh, job, uh, Loving It, in Moab, Utah, um, where there is no SA, but there is um, AA, good AA there. Uh, my wife has been a member of Al-Anon for 17 years, AA and Anon for 15 years, and SA for um, 14 years. Um, I can't tell you, like, in my upbringing program, I can't say if someone is an alcoholic or not. But I can tell you that um, you know, my father's drinking caused terrible problems, havoc, and disease in my family. Um, I can tell you that my mother's mother, my grandmother died of alcohol, and as did my mother's sister. Um, I have at least one sibling who is multiply addicted. Our daughter, uh, who is now 32, got sober, uh, got, had her 16th AA birthday a little while ago, which means she, she turned sober before her, before she was 16 years old, which is a miracle. Uh, so I'll go into a little bit. And it's always a little source, not really, that she's got more sobriety than I do. But I hope it always remains exactly... She's got exactly two months more than me for the rest of our lives. I have an ex-wife whose drinking and drug abuse has caused her to be incarcerated for manslaughter and has led to three suicide attempts. So you can see that there is a lot of uh, addiction, alcoholism, sex addiction in my life. I have two sons, age 28 and 25, from my first marriage. And so far, for both of these... Their, their addictions hasn't made themselves visible yet, uh, but given their family tree, I'm sure they're there. Um, so let's okay. So let's get down to my story now. Um, as is obvious by my family history, I was raised in an alcoholic and emotionally abused family. But it wasn't until my late teens, until I actually went away to college, that I understood or came out of my denial about the fact that I was abused and that alcoholism and other addictions. We're at the root. I lived in an upper middle class family. Uh, my father is an extremely brilliant man and very determined and a workaholic. And he provided a very good financial life for us. Our house had, was the house in the neighborhood that had the swimming pool and the trampoline and whatever. And all the kids in the neighborhood would come over to our house. And was just no way that a family like that, that there was alcoholism in it. And it never occurred to me that there was, but of course it did. Uh, my life was full of fear and confusion from age 4 until age 42. As a child, I never knew from day to day or hour to hour what was going to happen to me. I was absolutely It was absolutely impossible to please my father. Besides being a very over-demanding person, when if he was drunk or sober or only half-drunk, it meant different things as to what was right or permissible or good or bad in our family. I was punished often, and never understood what I was getting punished for. I still today don't know. I mean, there are some things, you know, when you put tax on the garage floor to see how good the tires are in the car, you, you understand you get punished for that. But um, otherwise, I never, uh, I never understood uh, what was perfectly acceptable on Monday. I was physically thrown across the room for on Tuesday. And on Wednesday my father would come home and give me get one of his slobbering moods and put his arms around me and his face reeking of alcohol two inches from mine and, and I'd get one of these drunchologue soliloquies and I couldn't I had no idea what he was saying at all. And I, I didn't understand what was the matter with me that I couldn't figure out what he was doing, and that I didn't like being next to his face. Uh, no matter what my grades were in school, um, I got chastised for it, and I was told I was no good. My report cards were almost always straight A's, but even then, I was, there was still grounds for a tongue lashing. Either I was I was spending too much time in school and work and not enough time on outside things, although I was on the swim team and the basketball team, and and held part time jobs and participated in other things. Or I was told that someone with my IQ grades shouldn't even matter. They you know, I should have skipped another grade, even though I'd already skipped one. Um and the the one time I came home with a B in French, you know, I couldn't sit down for a week. Uh so I never knew. And um and there was no way to um There was no way to win. Uh, As a result of living in in our family life, my mother had a nervous breakdown. Uh, She was caught in the middle. She was very young. I was 20 years old when she was, no, it works the other way around. She was 20 years old when I was born. Uh, (laughs) uh, She was a war bride. My father was away, and she had no, you know, fear. And and, uh, she was a young woman, child almost. Um, she was caught in the middle trying to protect her husband, her children, and herself. And her approach was to drill into us that we did not and could not have feelings. That we could not show them, and and it wasn't put this way, but the best way to not show them was to not have them. And if we showed our feelings, we were going to get in trouble because it worked. If we we showed that our father had hurt us, and, and we showed that on our face, I I can't tell you what dynamic went on in his head, but it was worse. We got punished worse, so we were taught not to have feelings. And I can tell you, um, I'll skip a second here. If I was going to say, I love my father today. I'm telling you about what it was like, and I'll get and and uh, through my years in Al-Anon and Essanon, and and doing a lot of work in the men's movement in the, the late 80s and such. Um, I have acceptance. Um, I still have to detach with love. He's still who he is. Uh, I just, I, six months ago, he was telling us that we had to do something and we couldn't have resentment about it. The, you know, I'm not going to do this <laughs> if you have resentments about it. I said, right, you know, okay. Uh, but that's the way I was brought up. Um... I think you can get the idea of what it was like as a child. I lived in constant dread, never understanding, and not knowing that it was alcoholism that was doing this. I never could figure out what was the right thing to do. Uh, I never could figure out what to do so as not to be physically or emotionally injured. Um, and it was mostly emotional abuse. Only periodically was it physical. Um, Anyway, living in this utter terror and confusion, my, my young mind found the most natural solution, and which was escape. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't consciously think that that's what to do at age seven years old or whatever. And if I wasn't, if I, I, I learned that if I wasn't around physically when my father came home, I was less likely to be punished. And if I wasn't around mentally, I wouldn't have to face the terrible fear and pain I was suffering So by age eight, I became very adept at finding places to hide, physically and mentally, dark places, very dark places, both physically and mentally, closets and bathrooms in the house, bushes and shadows outside the house, the exotic, the alluring, and forbidden inside my head. Um, I don't know at what age the escape inside my head turned to that most forbidden of all topics in my household, sex. But I'm going to guess it was no older than eight, because I remember getting in trouble at at age eight. Uh, I know by then I was already fully obsessed with sex, or let's just just say lust at the time. I didn't discover that that was so until I got into program. By eight years old, I had learned that several nights a week, our housekeeper took a bath. I learned that I could sneak out my window, run around to the back of the house, hide in the dark bushes, and peek through the windows to watch her. I never knew which night or at what time she would, this would happen. So every night, every night at eight years old, I would sneak out in the dark and cold and wait and wait, just in the hopes that this was the right night. So this was my first ritual. By... These first lust drunks were already part of my life. At eight years old, I was already wasting hours and hours on my obsession. One night, she saw through the window, she saw me. and she screamed and yelled, and the whole family came running. I ran away petrified, but luckily, or now I think, unluckily, they didn't realize it was me. They, they thought it was a Peing Tom. Little did they know it was a peeping cherry. Um, I, um, I had to, you're catching it. Okay.
2: <laughs> um,
1: I had to be more careful now, but I was totally hooked already. So I had to find new means, and it doesn't take an addict, no matter what age, long to find new means. Um, we lived in a large, older home. That literally had keyholes and had these old doors that they didn't quite fit to the door jamb or they were, and there might be a half inch up above. And I learned that if I turned my head the right way or stand up on the bed or whatever, that I could look through the, those doors or look through the keyholes. And so, at an, um, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours locked inside bathrooms or in a closet in my sister's,
2: you
1: know, next to my sister's bedroom, or whatever, looking through those things just in the hopes that they would come by and I would see them. And I did that for eight or nine years until I went away to college. Um, I had guilt and shame and adrenaline highs from the time I was eight until until I was 45. But, I mean, for those... Nine years. Um, later in one of the closets, I found a whole suitcase of pornographic pictures. Um, I was about 11. And it was locked. But I found if I could stretch it open and scratch my arm, I could reach in there and pull a few out. I would hide myself in this closet in the far back reaches of our house in the dark with a little flashlight for hours on end. Um, and getting into that pornography. Um, in high school... Oh, excuse me, I, I skipped, um, I learned about masturbation sometime into junior high school. I apologize to those of you in Essendon or so who maybe are hearing these things for the first time, but I talk pretty freely and openly about masturbation and such, and uh, I, I, I hope it doesn't offend anybody, but it's part of my life and it's the truth about who I am. Um, and I went at it like a true addict. Uh, every time and every place I could. At home, at school, in the bathrooms, wherever. At night, several times a night. I cannot believe that my mother didn't know what was going on. I mean, literally, just from the sheets or whatever. But I know that she was in fear. She didn't know how to confront me or anybody else on it or what she could have done about it. Um, In high school, I dated. Not very successfully. Um, I I was a very right student, not quite a nerd, so um, I was, you know, not just in that group, but um, uh, I had a couple of, you know, friends, and I was uh, in more like beatnik era almost, those type. Uh, So I had had a good time in high school, and I wasn't particularly athletic, but I still made the teams or was chosen because I had a gung-ho attitude that no matter what, you know, I was going to go until I killed myself at it. I had to be the best, so it worked pretty well that way um By dating, I dated for one reason only, and that was to get sex and it didn't take long for any woman i was around or girl at that age to learn that and understand that for twenty six years. It didn't take them long to learn and understand that uh and um I'm sorry. I'm sorry to them for, for the way I treated them. Um, by age 16, my friends and I were getting drunk almost every weekend. Uh, the first time I said never again about drinking, Eisenhower was still president. And for those of you with the quizzical looks on your face, that was the one before Kennedy.
2: Um, um,
1: I had tried marijuana by
2: 1960.
1: This was at a time when the only people who used marijuana were the jazz musicians and the the dope fiends. Um, And I I will say that during my, uh, my high school drinking years, we were smart enough, if you recall that, that we always had a designated driver. And that was the worst Saturday of your life. Uh, when you were the designated driver, and they were puking in your car and yelling all those things. It seems so great when you're drunk, but when you're the sober one driving, rather embarrassing. Um, Before my 16th birthday, I got caught by the police, stinking drunk, uh, urinating on a street corner. They, They made me stay in the drunk tank in Hollywood for four hours, which should have been enough lying with those people lying in their puke and whatever to have straightened me out, and that worked for about two weeks. Uh, I wish it had the effect that they'd hoped it would have on me. Uh, I had been in jail four other three other times, uh, nothing in prison, and not because I ever did anything just because I never got caught at the things that would have got, sent me to prison um, I went away to college to um, MIT, not because that's where I wanted to go, but that's because that's where I was told I was going to go by my father, and that I had, all through high school, I had to work to make sure that I would go there. Um, and actually, I have to say this, and it had nothing to do with who I was, I didn't have to work to get there. I had the IQ, not the work ethic, but the IQ to, to get there. I was not very happy in college at all. I was going through a uh, Passive aggressive resistance to being there. I certainly didn't understand that. I also was scared because now, you know, I, if I didn't if I did the same amount of work I did in high school, I barely got C's at MIT. So I really had to work at it, and I didn't know how. Uh, so uh, I was scared to death, and uh, and uh, so I had to learn other escape mechanisms. So I did a lot more drinking, drugging, and my sexual addiction did not. Go away at all. We slept dormant I was in a fraternity, and we slept dormitory style. All 30 of us in one room. Bunk beds. Not easy to masturbate in the bunk bed There's a lot of other people there. Um, learned how. First of all, I learned I just had to stay up later than everybody else. And so I would get to bed at 2.30 or 3 in the morning, and then we had 8 o'clock classes there, so I'd have to get up at 6.30, so I was always exhausted falling asleep in class. Um, I became completely paralyzed with fear. I'll we'll skip my college days, most of them, just to say that I, I dropped out for a while. As my parents said, I did this terrible thing. I dropped out of MIT and went to UCLA. Uh, uh, but I got back into MIT and did graduate. And um, I was kind of, I got kind of, I got off the, the alcohol and drug doing for a year, and actually got ended up on Dean's list the last year. Um, after I graduated from MIT in 1967, I went to work for my father, which was a mistake, to immerse myself into that, and got sent up to San Francisco. So I was living in San Francisco in 1967 during the height of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, I went originally to the Haight-Ashbury District because I'd actually lived there before. And during all this, quote, free whatever, I couldn't get it, and I learned in 1967, about prostitutes. Right. Uh, so when everybody else was going for free love and whatever, I was paying for
2: it. <laughs> I guess in more ways than
1: one. Uh, <laughs> um, it wasn't long before I got drafted, and I took a long, a, a drunken sexual odyssey throughout the United States. Um, I woke up in jail in New Orleans, all bruised and bloodied, and um, I didn't know how I got there. And uh, I woke up in the smelly jail cell and asked uh, the police, and it turns out that I was at a, a strip bar and had gotten beat up by the, the bouncer because I had sneaked backstage and was uh, accosting the performance. Um, but they let me go since I was on my way to the Army, and, you know, that's, you know that was their way of just thanking me or whatever. Uh, before uh, going into the Army, I started dating my first wife, Melanie. Um, in basic training, I couldn't practice my addictions much, except I, learned, I used the same techniques I had developed in the fraternity house for doing my masturbating and such, um, after going through my first training in, uh, in the Army, I was uh, sent over. I, was going to, I was, had orders to go to Vietnam to a person who discovers and, and deactivates landmines. Uh, and I just didn't think this was the chosen profession for me. Um, so I signed up for another year to go to Officer Candidate School. This is the way they taught us to, to look for mines now.
2: <laughs> Just kidding, but uh, <laughs> um, um,
1: I went to Officer Canada School, which is equivalent of four years at Annapolis or, Annapolis or West Point into six months of harassment and whatever they're on you all and I still I I was getting stoned there. Now, if I had gotten caught, I'd been court-martialed immediately. But I was getting stoned. Um, after graduating OCS, uh, I was getting married to my wife. I came back to Los Angeles. And um, two nights before the wedding, I had an affair with a former girlfriend. And was, I don't know stupid enough, but I would tell my future wife about this, which really started our marriage off well. Um... We went back to um, my wife and I went back to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and then um, I was sent to Vietnam. And we can skip the war horror stories here, but I will tell you that they were war horror stories. And that, in addition to to those horrors, I was getting stoned almost every night. And this is something that officers do not do. You get in, you get thrown in jail to break immediately. I will also tell you that um, I got a letter from the equivalent of the um, Postmaster General of the Army, said, uh, Dear Lieutenant, my last name is fine. Dear Lieutenant, we uh, understand that some people need the use of pornography to get through these difficult times here. But the amount you have received is well above and beyond anything that we have ever seen before. <laughs> and we think that you should tone down on the amount that you get bought. This is true. <laughs> and uh, I, I lived, I was I able to wagon myself a single room where I was living. It wasn't a room, but I mean, uh, I was stationed in the headquarters area, and I still had to go out into the field. But I didn't let them know that my last roommate... Uh, got transferred out, so that way I could do all the masturbating or whatever I wanted um, in my little, little wooden room there. Uh, after the three years in the Army, I returned to Los Angeles and started a 15-year downward slide into health. I didn't know it, but I, I uh, suffered death from what they, 10 years later, started calling delayed stress syndrome. Now, kind of post-traumatic stress, but at that time. And uh, I had no idea... What was going on? I was having flashbacks. I was uh, I was getting I was fired from several very high-level positions. I got into fights with bosses, with customers, with police, with Hell's Angels. Uh, I do not know. I've never won a fight in my life, uh, and I've been in a lot. Uh, I abused marijuana, LSD, mushrooms, cocaine. Uh, I wasn't a heavy drinker, but any time I drank, I got drunk. I could not stop. But I could go four months and not care if I had a drink or not. But if we got that first one in me, it wasn't until I passed out that the last one went. Um, But it was still, it was mainly the sexaholism. It it just overwhelmed me. Uh, For the first few years of my marriage, it was mainly masturbation. But obsessively, five to ten times a day. Later, as my marriage disintegrated, it spread to pornography affairs, mainly prostitutes. Uh, towards the end I was going to, towards the end of my acting out, I was going to prostitutes five times a week, sometimes three times a day. Um, and almost every waking hour of my day was spent in lust-filled fantasies or projections. I'll, I'll skip the actual, we don't need to hear all the acting out or whatever. Just believe me that I acted out every day of my life, several times a day, for the last 14 years. I acted out in my first marriage, I acted out while I was single between marriages, and I acted out in my current and next marriage. Towards the end, I got absolutely no pleasure from it. I knew, I knew as I was going up to those rooms or whatever, just shaking with um, adrenaline fear or whatever, that there was going to be no pleasure, but I continued to do it. And, and I was asking myself, why am I doing this? I think I, think I kind of, afterwards I look back and I see that as much as I also hated this adrenaline thing, I was addicted to that adrenaline rush also, as, as, as terrible as it was. Um, and over and over and over again, I said to myself, "Never again." Uh, when I uh, do the phones or whatever, you know, the calls into RSA, when, when I talk to people and I tell them, you know, I can't tell if you're an addict or a sex addict or not, but how many times have you said "Never again"? You know, if you've said it three times, you're not. You just don't say that, if it, um, and I tried also this. Uh, bounded, you know, I would put these lines here, you know, I will never ever do this. And then I'd cross that one and i say, well, okay, but I'll never do this. And I was scared about that because there were things over here, and I'm not judging anybody who did these things over here, but I just said, I will never ever do that. I'll kill myself first. But I said that about this, this, and this. So what made me believe that I could ever Stop myself from doing this over here. Um, and I tried, you know, this was long before people knew about sexual addiction, so I didn't, had no idea what was going on with me. And I tried everything to quit. I and mean, I tried willpower, 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 and more willpower. Um, I tried religion. I tried New Age spirituality. I tried more and more willpower. I tried psychotherapy and group therapy. And I have nothing against the therapeutic community, but they did not understand what was going on at the time. I was told to, you know, go to a different type of prostitute. I mean, maybe that will, or whatever. Uh, 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 I tried hypnosis. I tried, I don't know if you remember the shift aversion therapy thing where you, people are trying to quit smoking. They have you smoke so much that you got sick foot. I tried the, sexual equivalent of that, you know, just binging until I was sick of nothing, nothing. I tried going away on two-week isolation retreats out into the middle of the high desert, Mojave Desert. Nothing worked. And I didn't know what was going on with me. And I brought into our family, I brought disease, anger, and confusion into that. Almost every time I acted out, let me just say that in the end of my acting out, I would get more and more stoned, because we know we get tolerance. Tolerance meaning it takes more and more of whatever it is. And so the, act, the sexual things, couldn't find enough, new enough ways, so you'd have to mix it with this drug or this drug. Let's try, do this on cocaine, this on marijuana, this on beer and LSD or whatever. And uh, I knew every almost every time that when I was doing the drugs and the acting out, I, I would get home and I would get into a fight with my wife. Now, it was always her fault that I'd get in these fights. That was a tempered humor there. You guys missed that one? It was always my fault. I mean, and I would go home saying, you're not going to get in a fight. You're not going to get in a fight. And I was just as powerless over that as I was to not turn off the road and go out out of again. Uh, sometimes... I purposely started the fights because from acting out there would be scratches on my back or there would be, perf- be a stinky perfume on me. And, and I didn't, so I would start a fight so we would slam the doors and go into separate rooms and I wouldn't be discovered. And my poor wife and kids, they didn't know why I was doing this or what was going on or, or anything. Now, I'm thinking about it now and maybe for different reasons. They were just as scared of my coming home as I was when my father was coming home. Um, and I did, my wife did get uh, some sexually uh, communicable diseases um, I don't know how she didn't get AIDS I don't know how I didn't get AIDS I mean by, by then even AIDS was known I have an IQ of high enough that knowing what you're supposed to do, I never took protection I never did and then I would still have relations with my wife. And as far as I'm concerned, that's attempted murder. It's no different than I'm getting into an automobile with .28 alcohol. I, mean, I had no control over whether she, got, she died from what I was doing or not. And um, that was my disease. Um, to support my habits, I stole money from anyone I could, from employers, from family members from trust funds for my children. I wasted thousands of hours of uh, employer's time, lost, drunk on uh, lust, um, and in my acting out rituals. Um, I was sinking further and further into the hell of addiction and didn't know what to do about it. There was no one I could talk with. Uh, The therapists didn't understand. Buddies didn't understand. And I couldn't talk about this. I wasn't even really truthful with myself about what was truly going on, so there was really no one I could talk to about it. I couldn't stop acting out, I couldn't stop hurting all those around me. I brought disease into our family, I was stealing, cheating, yet getting no release or pleasure from it. Yet, none of that was what made me want to stop. What made me want to stop was the fact that I couldn't take lying anymore. I couldn't stand lying to my wife and my kids, my employers, and myself. I just couldn't take it. I have this twisted set of rationalizations, which sometimes I was able to convince myself that my acting out wasn't hurting anyone. Um, I know, of course, it was. but, uh, But if it wasn't hurting anybody, and if there wasn't anything wrong with it, why did I have to lie to everybody about it? I couldn't get a twisted, sick enough thinking to, to get that rationalization through. Um, and the only way I knew to quit lying about it was to stop doing it, and I didn't know how to stop doing it. Uh, so I was stuck, and I had no idea it was an addiction. Um, little did I know that God had been working in my life. And I will use God and higher power interchangeably. And, and uh, my higher power was not God until about three years into the program. Uh, now it is. And uh, if God is not your higher power, please don't. If I say God, please don't do anything other than think higher power or whatever. Uh, I'd switch off between those. But God had been working in my life. I mentioned before that her daughter is a recovering alcoholic. In uh, the next Next thing, I'll talk a little bit about how she came into my life and what that was all about. But I will always say that she made my life a living hell. I hated every minute she was in it. Uh, not that it wasn't a living hell already, but she made it worse. And I hated everything about her, and by 15 years of age, she was out of the house living on the streets. Uh, found AA before her 16th birthday. And even though I wasn't... Even though I wasn't an alcoholic, um, I went to her meetings to support her when uh, she earned her chips. I was there for her 30-, 60-, and 90-day chips. Um, and I got to hear what people were saying there. But I still didn't put together that this is for her. This is for people like her, not, not, not people like me. Uh, then came the day, and I, I can remember it so clearly, um, I was, uh, through white knuckling, uh, I had gone three days without going to a prostitute or a porno arcade. I didn't realize that masturbation was part of it too, so I hadn't get off the masturbation. I had been in this state many, many times before, but to no avail. But I was, I noticed I was sweating, I was exhausted, I couldn't sleep at night, I was full of anger, confusion, and, and lost. And, and the, I was driving down the street, and the thought came to me, where have I, I've heard these symptoms before, where have I where have I heard them? And I said, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. It was at the AA meetings, with, those are withdrawal symptoms they were talking about. And I remember literally the, hitting myself in the forehead and saying, I have an addiction. This is an addiction. And, oh, the, I mean, the lights went on. Uh What an awakening. But, and this was the beginning of the end, but still, where did I go from here? You didn't hear about sexual addiction. You didn't know books or anything. I didn't even know what I was addicted to. I I thought I was addicted to prostitutes. In fact, that's what my addiction was. Um, I had no idea where to go to get help or anything. Uh, But I'm a good person at researching. Now, this was before the internet. By the way, Two things, I'm, I'm grateful for a lot of things, but I'm so grateful that I got sober before the internet and before crack cocaine. I do not know that I'd be alive today. Um, so, but I had to do a lot of research on my own. I went to, you know, libraries and, uh, called state agencies and whatever. Um, but I will say this, I had the, I had the enlightenment that I can't drink or do drugs anymore. Because I knew that if I got drunk or stoned, I would not have, I thought, I thought what it was took was willpower, but I wouldn't have the willpower at that time to not do it. So I did stop, I actually stopped drinking and drugging before I got sober in Essay. Uh, but my, I don't consider my AA birthday until after I got sober, because I hadn't considered myself an alcoholic. Um, I called AA offices all up and down the state. You know, Do you have anything for people who go to? Prostitutes or whatever. Got a lot of weird responses to that, you know. Uh,
2: <laughs>
1: um, I can tell another story later on about in the early days of what people in AA thought about SA, but um, I couldn't find anything anywhere. Um, one day, this is a this is an absolutely true story. I was in a bookstore looking if I could find a book in the self help section, you know. And couldn't find anything, walking out dejectedly frustrated, and I honestly and literally tripped on a bookshelf that contained these esoteric nonfiction books, newly released. And out fell a book, as I fell on the floor, right in my face, called Out of the Shadows. And uh, I picked it up and was starting to put it back when I read what the subheading was. And I couldn't believe, I could not, believe it. So I started reading it. My heart started pounding 150. I literally swooned and, and had to, I couldn't believe that there was something. I, um, I took that book. I went to a park that was across the street, read it through twice, underlined three quarters of it <laughs> that, that applied to me. I just didn't believe that other people were going through this. Um, and in the back of the book, um they were talked about organizations. But no phone numbers. And so I again began calling uh um, AA offices up around. And finally I got hold of an old geezer at an AA office. He says, I got a card here from some fellow who says, You ever get his calls like you're giving me these weird ones? Haven't called me.
2: <laughs> so
1: so uh, I got um, I got hold of this fellow who they told me to call It was about 11 o'clock at night. Luckily, my wife was out of town. And I immediately called this fellow, and that was the first time I talked to Roy Kay. Now, I had no idea who Roy Kay was or anything, but here I was talking to somebody who knew exactly what I was talking about, who could tell my story without ever hearing me. And, uh, I got on that call and I don't remember a thing he said because I was bawling and crying and, and, and whatever. But I do know, I mean, I do know that, yes, I had found, I had found someone, I had found hope. And I got off the phone, cried for about an hour and called this guy back. Now, I didn't know that Roy was going to go to 9 about 9.30. And, and I called him now for the second time about one in the morning, but, uh, uh, but the next day, I got to a, to an essay meeting. The very next day, and uh, Arizona, I crawled to that meeting because I, I could have fit under that little crack in the door. So <laughs> the, the, the way I was feeling, um, the good news was that this. The good news was at this meeting was that here were a dozen people. I think at that time there were actually two women even. Uh, who who were my fellow addicts. So I made the decision that even though I didn't believe in them, I was going to do every, put every ounce of my by, every ounce of effort into following these programs and the tools they proposed. I think part of it was, I didn't think it would work. And and for me to be able to clinically say it didn't work, I had to give it everything it had, otherwise I couldn't prove that it didn't work. Um, But it did work. Um, It worked. And it worked because I worked it. It worked because I put 100% effort into it. Um, I did exactly what they told me to do. I wholeheartedly followed every suggestion they put forth. I immediately got a sponsor. I called him every day, and I got honest with him and stayed honest with him. I I heard somebody, I think it was actually an SNL speaker at the last conference, say that the only requirement they have for the sponsor is that they be honest with him. That's the only requirement that they have. And and I see that now, and I'm grateful that I was as honest as you could be when you still have the fog of the disease and everything in there. Um, I called other members. I called one member every morning, one from work, and one in the evenings. And I did not, by the way, as an aside, I did not tell my wife I was going to essay. Uh Eventually, I told her I was going to uh, AHA, which I was, but I didn't tell her that I was also going to, to essay. I went to every meeting I could find, but at that time, in all of Southern California, there were only three and each of them was at least, well, one was 15 miles away, and the other two were about 35 to 40 miles away. But I knew I had to do everything I could. Um, I read the essay and AA literature. I began working through the steps immediately. I did service from the very beginning, making coffee. I stayed away from slippery places. Uh, but most of all, I surrendered. And I surrendered, and I surrendered, and I surrendered, and I surrendered. I surrendered 200 times a day. Uh, Every time lustful thoughts came to my mind, I admitted that I was powerless over them and asked my higher power to take them away. Um, I, I didn't try not thinking about them. I learned that fast. But if I tell you now, don't think about a purple orangutan, There's no one here right now who's not thinking about a purple orangutan or can get it out of their mind. Uh, So I learned that. I learned that not trying to think about that person didn't work. So instead, I asked my higher power to help me focus on something here, such as the steps or the serenity prayer or what my life could be like with serenity, dignity, and integrity. Um, I also remember... I worked where there were a lot of triggers, and I remember literally walking into posts because I was looking away from whatever was there. I have this way, the same way when I drive. If I look to the right, I drive to the right. Don't. And I would walk into these columns or whatever. I didn't care how embarrassing it was or anything, because it was going to be a lot more embarrassing if I ever acted out again. And um, I did not focus on what I was giving up. I focused on what I was getting. And, and after a month or so, that was pretty easy to do because already I was getting a better life. One I hadn't even imagined a month ago. I still had lust attacks, many, many, many of them for months and months. But each time it was easier and easier to surrender them because I saw the miracle that happened when I truly surrendered them. And as I worked the steps and cleared up the wreckage of my past, there were fewer and fewer of these lust attacks because I had fewer and fewer fearful and shameful feelings to escape from. Um, I had completely reversed that deadly spiral of acting out, the one where we feel terrible, so the only way we know to escape is to get caught in lust and act out, and then we feel worse, and so... I think you know the one. (laughs) Uh, Instead, the more I worked my program, the less disease-filled thoughts and feelings I had, the less of these feelings I had, the the less I needed to escape, the less I needed to escape, the less lust there was in my life, the less lust there was in my life, the more I could work on myself, see myself, and the less need there was to escape from the real world. And I don't believe there is an upper limit to this Resonance, spiritual, uh, spiral of recovery. Uh, I don't think, you know, I think there may be a bottom, but I don't think there's a top. Uh, there's nothing to stop me each and every day from strengthening my recovery and improving who I am and what I do. And I'm nobody special. I'm nobody special. Yet today I have all I could ever want in this world. I have no special talents which gave me any advantage over anyone else. Getting clean and sober, staying clean and sober, and working on my recovery one day at a time. My acting out activities, my childhood upbringing, my emotional health, etc., they may not have been quite—you know—they may have been quite different from each of yours here. But when I walked through the doors of these rooms, I started from exactly the same place. Each of us started from, and I was given exactly the same tools that are available to all of us. So believe me, if I can do it, you can do it. But you've got to want to do it. And I'll go into that more. And you've got to want to do it more than anything else in the world. And and we'll talk about that a little bit later. For now, I just want to say thank you all. God bless you all.